Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'm filling in for Beth Heaton, the regular host. Now on to today, for my second segment, Shannon Vasconcelos, a veteran college finance consultant here at College Coach, and I will both be answering listener questions about the topics of admissions and for and paying for college. But first, I'm very excited to welcome Michael Sherman to discuss the connection between majors and careers. He is the founder of the company Graduate to Employment and is a 25-year veteran in the fields of staffing and recruitment. Before founding his own agency in which he advises job seekers on how to find the right employment for them and hiring managers, on how to find the right match for their company, he led global recruitment for the Bank of America, which hired over 5,000 entry-level candidates right out of college annually. So he was the perfect person to talk to us today as we advise students about majors. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Sally. It's great to be with you today. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And I know that I already gave some intro into your background. You're clearly highly experienced. But was there anything I missed, anything you would want to make sure listeners know about your background? Well, I've been in the field of staffing and recruitment all my professional life over 25 years. As you mentioned, most recently, I was accountable for global staffing across all of Bank of America. Uh, Before that, I was accountable for global staffing for EMC Corporation, which is a technology company located just outside of Boston that actually was acquired uh, last year by Dell. So my experience is broad-based in terms of different industries, and uh, I have a passion for working with young people, helping them make that transition from college to professional life. Okay, wonderful. And we all know that's a tough transition, and it's also something people are really anxious about. so let's let's give people as much information as we can. What did you what did you look for when you were hiring uh, for Bank of America or for EMC? Did you only hire finance or tech majors, or no, was it far broader? from it? Uh, you, you know, when we hired into both of those organizations, and even prior to my experience with both of those companies, um, it really depended upon the position. There are some entry-level positions that are obviously going to be, you know, what I'll call major dependent. So, for example, if you're looking for a career within engineering or nursing or computer science, I think that from an education point of view, it's very important to the employer that your undergraduate major reflects a strong background within those areas. I think for other opportunities, uh, you know, obviously a major is a component of someone's candidacy um, and how you're representing yourself to an employer. But it's not the deciding component. It's a factor to be considered. But really, it's more about the individual and what he or she is bringing to the company. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I mean, when when I'm advising parents and students, a lot of them are really panicking because the student doesn't have a major in mind. 
um, or because they think their favorite subjects, you know, this is a student whose best subjects, favorite subjects are history and government. And, uh, and their parents think, well, this doesn't give any professional options other than teaching. And the student doesn't want to be a teacher. So what would you tell that student? Well, I would tell that student that I, w- I would disagree with uh, the advice that they're getting from their parents, uh, candidly. Uh, I was a political science and history major, and as you mentioned in the introduction, I was responsible for hiring for one of the largest companies in the world, uh, with 600 people working across the organization in 42 countries. So that in itself was running a, a large business. Uh, again, companies hire people, they don't hire majors, and employers are seeking diversity in their workforce, and diversity in this regard is not simply gender and ethnicity, but it's also diversity of thought. Um, there was a recent article, uh, an interview in Bloomberg that Mark Cuban gave, and it was fascinating because he says over the next 10 years that he believes there's going to be a greater demand uh, for liberal arts majors um, than uh, more professional, quote-unquote, majors. Uh, you know, he talks about how the next 10 years is going to be about analyzing data and that uh, the most successful companies will be able to analyze data from different perspectives, from diverse perspectives. And uh, he talked about diversity in terms of a liberal arts background. That's been echoed by a number of different employers um, in recent years with different surveys and so on that have gone on. Three surveys in particular that I found interesting, a group called collegegrad.com, uh, did a survey. Uh, Economics of the Education Review did a survey, and the American Association of Colleges and Universities also conducted a survey. The college grad survey talked to 22 companies, and only four of the companies said that someone's major, quote-unquote, really mattered to them. Um, Ten companies said majors were, as I said, a component, uh, and uh, the other four companies said the major was not the deciding factor. Uh, the economic survey talked about how only 55% of graduates went into the same field as their major. And the, the survey from the American Colleges and University found that 93% of the responding employers cited attributes, things like critical thinking, communication, and problem solving, as more important than a candidate's un- undergraduate major. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's great. So let's unpack the attributes a little bit more. Like, what would you advise a college student to do while they're in college to build those attributes? And what are so the what, attributes in particular? Sure. Go ahead. Sure. I think the best way to start is to talk about what those attributes are. Um, there's an organization called NACE, which is the National Association of Colleges uh, and Employees. That's an enormous organization. Um, that consists of both representatives from colleges and universities uh, across the country, uh, about 2,000 colleges and universities, and over 3,100 recruiting professionals that recruit for entry-level opportunities across multiple industries throughout the United States. And in a survey in December, that question was asked, you know, what type of attributes are critical to you, the employer, as you're looking to uh, hire into entry-level positions? And there was a common theme, uh, problem-solving uh, skills, ability to work in a team, written communication skills, uh, leadership, strong work ethic, analytical and qualitative skills, uh, verbal communication skills, attention to detail, flexibility, and technical skills. Again, this is not to say that, that you know, your major is immaterial to a uh, potential employer, 
But what employers are looking to do is, again, they hire the person. They're not necessarily hiring the major. So they're hiring somebody who has those attributes and qualities and uh, is able to articulate that he or she has those attributes in their resumes, in networking conversations, and then ultimately in an interview uh, with a potential employer. Mm-hmm. So what are some experiences that they could have in college that would help them develop those, um, those particular attributes? I mean, one of That's the things that question. I've been emphasizing with students is, you know, even if you did have a finance major, if you don't do anything outside of the classroom, you're not going to be that attractive to an employer, Right. Again, so, I, I you know, couldn't agree with you more. Uh, go ahead. It comes back to my comment about employers looking to build a diverse workforce. And so, you know, if you happen to be a finance major, but everything that you've done is 100% finance directed, that doesn't make you very diverse. And so to mm-hmm. answer your question, uh, I would say that getting involved in uh, activities outside of quote unquote the norm while you're in school, meaning clubs, volunteerism, things that don't necessarily reflect what you have done in the past, but show that you're open to new ideas, uh, new experiences, and be able to articulate those new ideas and what you learned from those experiences vis-a-vis to those attributes that I walked through. So, for example, you know, joining a club, and then if leadership is one of the attributes that companies are looking for, well, so when you joined the club, you know, were you able to run for office, if you will? Did you take a leadership position with that club? And so there's a lot of things that people can do and young people can do to bolster their candidacy and to make them stand out. Remember that every year at the undergraduate level, there's almost 2 million students looking to transition into the workforce for limited opportunities. So you want to be able to represent, represent yourself and your candidacy is what you can bring to an employer. And uh, those are the attributes that employers are looking for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So are there advantages, though, to if you have a, a particular major in mind, like finance, are there actually advantages to majoring in it, knowing that the major alone isn't going to do it? Sure. No, there's no question about it. I mean, the top degrees, going back to that same survey that I cited from NACE, the, the top degrees that uh, employers are looking for, uh, business, uh, computer science, math and science, communications, uh, social studies, humanities, healthcare, and education. So again, it's not to say that the major does not matter. The major is a component of who you are and the candidacy that you're representing to a particular employer. So, but it, my, my advice to a student is just because you didn't have that quote unquote business major, don't shortchange yourself and think that you're not qualified to apply for that opportunity. So uh, that, that's, that's what I would say is, again, companies hire people, they don't hire majors. Mm-hmm. So what does the, you know, how would a history major, for example, position herself to go into finance, given that that wasn't her major? I mean, I don't want to overly focus on finance, but in, in my part of the world, that's a big focus. And it, sure. to me, it seems like one of the fields where it's actually much more flexible than people realize. So I really want to get that point across. So, like, what should a history uh, major do if she's like, you know what, I want to do finance, but I'm really loving my major. I don't want to switch my major. That's a career goal. That's not my major. So what would you suggest there? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. So, again, going back to the diversity of the experience that that history major had at school, uh, did that particular person volunteer for some type of club or organization? If their passion is finance, uh, what did they do? Were they the treasurer of that club? What type of business background did they have within that club? I'm working with a, a client right now uh, who's a theater major and who wants to go into business. And what she did while she was at school was she joined a number of different clubs and ran the business aspect of the club. So she's going to be able to tell a potential employer, although I'm a theater major, I have a business background within that area of expertise. Um, mm-hmm. Again, another, another uh, uh, survey that I was really intrigued uh, to learn about was um, from the Brookings Institute recently, and what they found was that uh, there's a direct correlation between the skills that people uh, uh, learn outside of school from different clubs and organizations. They analyzed the market value of the most uh, 25 commonly cited skills listed from alumni of schools across their LinkedIn profile. And what it showed was that skills development and not your undergraduate major was more critical to your earning potential. So again, that uh, history major who has a passion for finance, if she is able to demonstrate that she's using that passion towards skills within clubs and volunteering, that's going to be very attractive to a potential employer. Mm -hmm. And how... um I love the refocusing onto skills because I think that that is really neglected. Um, And just in kind of another question in terms of um, one of the big questions that I always get is, what about internships? Internships are required, right? Um, So what what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think an internship is, uh, from a company standpoint, and this is counterintuitive if you think about it, but the most expensive hires, not from a salary point of view, but from a process point of view, the most expensive hires that a company makes on an annualized basis are entry-level hires across campuses. It's extremely expensive for companies to go out and recruit on campus. And so the way that most companies look to make their entry-level hires is through the previous summer's interns. So again, internships critically important uh, to gaining experience and ultimately helping you at the end of that internship junior year, hopefully walk away with an offer from that employer to join upon graduation. It's a great way not only, again, to potentially get an offer, but to gain valuable experiences and skills in areas that you think of might be of interest upon graduation. Mm-hmm. All right, and so what are, what are the majors that actually do um, that actually are required for particular careers. I mean, I think you briefly mentioned nursing, um, computer science, but I know that, that in a previous discussion, we noted that people have gone into the computer field without a computer science major. Yeah, and that's changing more and more with this generation because people's passions and hobbies in this particular generation, unlike, unlike myself, uh, are much more technical and computer savvy. So you may have that history major who on the side uh, enjoys building apps. And that's completely, you know, that's different. And if he or she, again, is, is able to articulate to a potential employer, hey, I may be a history major, but let me show you what I do in my spare time and let me show you the aptitude that I've built building these apps. Uh, again, I'm working with another candidate uh, who is a, a finance major, believe it or not, 
but his passion and what he likes to do uh, in his downtime, build apps. And he built an app uh, that the, uh, his classmates are using on campus for on-campus food delivery for local restaurants. So although he wants to go into finance, he could easily go into computer science uh, with, uh, with his ability to write that code and, and, uh, and have a great story to tell a potential employer. Mm-hmm. And it seems like what we're coming back to, too, is having that story. I mean, that's really more important than the major. The major might be one part of the story, um, but you've got that story to tell about either having had an internship or maybe being treasurer of the, of the club. And it seems like a strong candidate. I'm, I was just thinking about your theater major. I mean, she can talk about all the unbelievable um, skills that she will have developed from theater in terms of being around people, presentation, you know, public exactly. speaking. There's- exactly. Yep, and and that she, I've got another uh, uh, client with whom I'm working. It's an econ major and a religion minor. That's a great story to tell. Everybody's got a story mm-hmm. to tell. And mm-hmm. again, as companies are hiring off campus, um, they're looking to hire young people to bolster their workforce, to bring energy into their workforce, to bring diverse perspectives into their workforce. And the story that you're able to tell about what makes you, you, what makes you unique is critical to your candidacy. Companies don't want to hire everybody who looks the same or acts the same or thinks the same. It's mm-hmm. not good for their business. And so your job as you enter into school and determine, hey, here's an area of interest of me, a focus of mine, is to gain as much practical experience within that area as possible, but also branch out. Experience new things. As I say, join clubs. Get involved in things that you didn't think maybe uh, you would be involved in before school. And once you're involved, try and take a leadership role there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, that is really helpful. And it is interesting to me how much there's an overlap between what colleges look for in their applicants and apparently what hiring managers look for in their applicants. You know, we want a diverse class. We want people who are interesting and who have a story to tell. I mean, that's what I looked for when I was at University of Chicago. And it looks like there's a huge overlap here. And I think, I think, you know, as you think about it, I agree with you 100%. As hiring managers have debrief sessions after interviewing with uh, pools of candidates, as a, your job as a candidate, your objective as a candidate is you want that hiring manager when he or she is sitting around with their peers to say, let me tell you about the person I saw at 2 o'clock today. Let me tell you about his background. Let me tell you what he did. Let me tell you why he was so unique. You won't believe this experience that he had. That's the type of conversation that jazzes up an employer. Not necessarily, I met with an econ major who was a 3-8. That's a, that's a, a good candidate and a great candidate, but that's not a differentiated candidate. And that's mm-hmm. what you're looking to do. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that's a wonderful place um, to end on. So thank you so much, Michael. My pleasure. Thanks again for the opportunity to join you today. I appreciate it. All right, everyone. We're going to take a short break, but when we get back, Shannon Vesconcelos will be joining me. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions. 
about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, Shannon Vasconcelos is now joining me to answer listener questions. Welcome, Shannon. Hi, Sally. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So let's go ahead and dive on into the questions. Do you want to fire off first? Absolutely. So our first question is... um, I am a student going into the 11th grade. Since I am entering the full IB diploma, I have little flexibility in course selection, but my school does provide the option to take additional classes online. I struggled in math and science in my freshman and sophomore years by getting Bs. Uh, Would it be advisable to take additional AP math and science courses online in hopes of getting an A in order to strengthen my application to admissions officers? Uh, Also, do colleges look at online courses any differently? I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and going to say the answer is it depends, Sally. <laughs> but but yeah. please let us know. How do you know, Shannon? <laughs> yeah. How did I've you know? Yes, it, it, <laughs> it does depend on so many things in college admissions. Um, 
I will say that in-person classes in general are definitely going to be better. But if you don't have the option of an in-person class, then there's not going to, that's going to be understood. Like in in general, colleges would rather you take the class at your high school. Um, But if that's not an option, then an online is your only other option, then that's obviously what you should do. Um, I mean, I'll just throw out that there sometimes is an option of taking classes at a local college in person, and that might carry a little more weight than an online class. But again, if the online classes are part of the high school curriculum, if they'll end up on your transcript, then I would say I think that's completely fine. Um, What I will also say, and I would say this does not depend, is that you really need to keep going in math and science. I mean, I, I wasn't sure from your question, but it sounds like maybe you weren't going to take math at all after your sophomore year, and that's a flat-out bad idea. Like, we really recommend four years of math, and ideally four years of science, but really minimum of three years of science. So they don't even necessarily have to be AP, although certainly AP classes are great if you think you can do well in them. I mean, you got Bs in maybe regular classes, so I'm wondering if the AP might be too much. But what I want to tell you to do is keep taking these classes, even if they're not at the AP level. Um, That in and of itself is going to be very, very important. You know, a transcript that doesn't have math in the last two years is really not ideal. Now, one thing I will say is that we don't know this question may be coming from overseas where curriculum can be much more rigor, much more rigid, in which case, you know, you know, you're viewed in the context of your high school. And so if you're not, um, you know, if you're in a high school where nobody else is sort of taking you know, math and science, who's not a math and science major, then that's going to be understood um, as well. Um, In that situation, yeah, maybe it is a good idea to take the additional AP math and science, but again, only if you can at least get a B in that, obviously. So hopefully that helps. There was a lot of it depends (laughs) in there, as Shannon (laughs) pointed out. I would venture a guess that the other thing it, it depends on is what colleges you're looking at. Now, it sounds like the student is pushing themselves quite hard. They're saying they're struggling by getting Bs. And, you know, Bs are wonderful grades and would be perfectly acceptable at many, many, many colleges. It's just at that most selective level where they're looking for more kind of A's across the board. Would you say that's the case? That's completely true. And I'm glad that you said that because I went immediately into my University of Chicago mindset. Right. (laughs) I read college mindset and forgot about my Whittier college background where, (laughs) believe me, like they would be like, come on down, buddy. We got space for you. So, um, and yeah, but I mean, another point too, that I will mention is that we do recognize that um, full IB is a really rigorous program. So uh, like really the vast majority of colleges in the United States are going to be thrilled with B's in a pre IB and then in a full IB program. So just to make sure you know that. All right, Shannon, so why don't we um, get started with our first finance question? Sure. Okay, all right, so this is from Michael. Um, My family has enough resources to not qualify for most grants and need-based aid, but we want to know how we can avoid being strapped by the possible costs of over $200,000 for four years at a private university. What can we do? So that's a pretty broad question. (laughs) (laughs) It is, and there are lots of things you can do. Um, So first of all, kind of the assumption built into this question is uh, it sounds like he's assuming that that the 
the child is going to go to a private university. One option to avoid, you know, that $200,000 in cost is to attend a public university. There are lots and lots of wonderful public universities out there that would be, you know, half the price. So that's certainly one option. Um, you can also, even if you want to lower your costs even further, you can start out at a community college, do two years at a very low-cost community college, then transfer into a four-year school, either public or private, and that can save you a ton of money as long as you're planning carefully in terms of the courses that you're taking at the community college that are going to transfer into the four-year school. Uh, so that's another option. Um, if you do definitely want to kind of exclusively you're looking at private colleges um, and you're not going to qualify for need-based aid, which one thing I would make sure that you're not just assuming that, that you have run the net price calculator uh, that's available on every college's website to determine for sure whether or not you're going to qualify for need-based aid. Um, some I talk to a lot of people who are actually expect they're not going to qualify for need-based aid, um, and then when they run the numbers, they actually qualify for a decent amount. So you want to be sure you're just not assuming that, that you run the, the net price calculator on uh, each college's website. That, that will give you a pretty good estimate of whether or not you would qualify for, for need-based aid. But if you truly are not going to qualify for need-based aid, um, the other way to get a big discount from a college is through merit scholarships. So the big kind of strategy there is to apply to some colleges, public or private again, where you're going to be kind of overqualified, where you're going to be an above average student. Um, the colleges use scholarships to recruit the students that stand out the most in their applicant pool. So apply to a few schools where you're going to be a standout student, and it's likely that you will not be asked to pay that full, you know, $200,000 sticker price uh, that you'll be offered, uh, you know, a decent discount in the form of merit scholarship. So I would say those are kind of the big options, you know, choose a public over a private do a couple years at community college or choose a private school where you're going to be kind of overqualified where they'll try to recruit you with merit scholarship money. That's the way to get out of, you know, that big $200,000 bill. Mm -hmm. And I want to put in a plug when we speak about public universities for the honors colleges, mm -hmm. which really provide some nice options Absolutely. for students. Yeah, without any additional tuition costs. So Right, and they, um, they often provide that sort of smaller, kind of close-knit, um, very academically challenging environment that you see at some private colleges, but within a larger public university. They can be a really great option. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So the next admissions question comes in from TJ. And TJ says, our son is a strong junior candidate for highly selective colleges. I'm assuming he means they, or the, his son's a junior in high school, strong candidate for highly selective colleges. He wants the academically strongest school in his field of interest, which is math, that he can gain admission to, regardless of the size and location and all sorts of other factors. Really, what he cares about is getting into the, the strongest school in his field. Uh, in addition to a a few match and safety schools. How many of those highly selective colleges with 6 to 15% admission rates are reasonable to target? 
um, for the motivated student to have time and energy to submit quality applications and really be able to learn enough about and visit those schools. If time and application fees are not a hindrance, is there any reason not to apply to 10 or more such highly selective schools? Oh, all right. Um, these kind of questions, I'll just be honest, they make me a little crazy um, because I, I really think that um, obviously academics should be most important. I'm, no one's denying that. But there's so many great colleges in this country that to just focus on like just your math major and how, you know, how strong it is in that one field is really missing out on kind of the full um, extent of what your college experience can be. Um, So I first just want to push you to think about the fact that like, although MIT and Caltech and, um, you know, are both, for example, top schools, both top tech schools even, they're really different environments. And so you would want to think carefully about which environment you'd be happiest in. Because I think if you're going to be happiest, that's when you're going to actually do best academically as well. So I just want to push back on that and suggest that you think about more than just that one thing. All right. So that being said, how many is um, how many colleges essentially is it reasonable to apply to? I mean, I've seen students successfully apply to 12 schools. And when I say successfully, I mean they weren't – it was hard work. I want to be clear about that. But they were completely overwhelmed, and they were able to do a thoughtful job, visit most, if not all, of those colleges, and have really well-articulated reasons for applying to all of those colleges. So, you know, so subtract five um, from, say, from 12, and so you could maybe apply to up to, you know, seven REACH schools, Um you know, two safeties. I really recommend three mid-range schools. Honestly, I would actually recommend maybe up to four. But if you were talking the minimums, you know, two safety, yep. three mid-range, and then the rest of those can be reach. Um, you know, if t- and but keep in mind that time is always a hindrance. It may be the application fees are not a hindrance for you, but time is always going to be. Um, a hindrance because many of these colleges, their application essays might not even be available, um, you know, until the school year starts. Sometimes that happens. I mean, so time is always a hindrance. So that is one of the factors that I would recommend that you um, take into account. Yeah, there are only 24 hours in the day. No matter yeah, what you and do, you can't change that. You cannot change that. And you have to continue to do well in school in your senior year also. So now the one exception that I would make is that there are occasional schools like the University of California system. um, You know, it's one application for all the colleges. So for that one, I'm sort of more, I mean, people at UCLA are going to want to kill me now because they already get so many applications. But there's there's no downside other than the application fee to adding on extra UC schools, for example. I mean, again, it's the same application all you have to do is essentially choose the major differently for each school but for most highly selective colleges you're going to have to write maybe one maybe three or four additional essays for each college so it's time consuming and if those essays aren't good you might as well not bother Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. and I think at those uh, many of those probably um, schools that this person is probably looking at those highly selective schools a lot of them ask you and correct me if I'm wrong, Sally, you know, why are you applying to this school? Um, so you really have to 
know a lot about the school and be able to articulate why it's that school, besides their high ranking in the math department, that makes you want to attend. And that's hard to do with a whole lot of schools. It is, absolutely. Yeah, they do not. I mean, one of the things that students I see all the time, you know, is with the why essays is they're like, why? Well, because it's a very prestigious and good school. That doesn't mm-hmm. cut it. They already know that. They want to know yep. their their response to that is going to be, yeah, there's a ton more. There's like a hundred more really <laughs> incredible, prestigious schools with great math departments. So why us particularly above and beyond just yep. this particularly strong department. It's not that you can't talk about the department, right? I mean, if you do research and you're like, and you say, you know, this particular department, like this faculty member approaches mathematics in a way that's really new and original, um, and I find it fascinating, that's great. But then they usually are going to want you to go beyond that in terms right. of um, the reasons why you're attending. Because remember, they don't just want members of a major. They want community members. They want students who are going to be part of a broader educational community they want someone who's going to be a good roommate who's going to be a good um you know just a good well-balanced friendly person outside the classroom as well right exactly (laughs) okay all right so i will ask you the next finance question jean has asked do 529 plans and private assets and then there's quote in in quotation marks count against you when competing for aid yeah, so the 529 plans, um, which for anyone who doesn't know, they're a college savings plan, like what the 401k is to your retirement account, the 529 is as a college, a tax advantage college savings account. Um, so 529s and other assets, um, I, I like the quotes, do count against you when competing for aid, but actually to a pretty small extent. The financial aid formula is really mostly driven by the family's income. Um, That is what almost always determines really whether somebody qualifies for financial aid or not. It's generally not the assets, it's not the savings, it's their family income. It's a fairly complicated formula, but when it comes down to it, the colleges generally expect that a family can contribute something like 20 to 30% of their income to college each year. It's quite a huge chunk of your income. When they're looking at assets, including 529s, um, they only expect parents to contribute anywhere from 0 to 6% of their assets each year to college. Um, 529s, even though they're college savings accounts, they're looking at them like any other parental assets. So worst case scenario, they expect you to contribute 6% of your 529 um, to college. Um, so it, it really it does feed into the formula, but to a pretty small extent. Um, so I, I wouldn't worry about really how much you have in savings. As long as it's in the parents' names, students' assets are actually looked at more harshly in the formula. But parent assets and 529s do count as parent assets um, feed into the formula to, to a pretty small extent. Whatever you save in a 529 or elsewhere is going to help you pay for college much, much more than you know, the small amount of financial aid it might cost you. So mm-hmm. keep, keep saving. Um, it doesn't hurt you much in the financial aid process. Mm-hmm. All right, thanks. So we're going to take a quick break, and then Shannon and I will return to uh, continue answering listener questions. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Are you looking to get more from your relationship? Why is it that some people just seem to have a better sex life, better marriage, and a closer, more meaningful relationship? Find out the best-kept secrets and more on The Sexy Lifestyle with Carol and David. Carol and David will share insight about the swinging lifestyle and how it has strengthened their love and marriage, not to mention their great sex. Tune in every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, Shannon Vasconcelos and I are answering listener questions. So, um, all right, Shannon, I guess it's your turn to ask me a question. Sure is. So... The next question is, it's a little shorter than the, the, the first couple that we've answered. Um, I don't know if the answer will be shorter, but the question is shorter. It is simply, do I have to continue taking a world language in the 11th and 12th grade? <laughs> so this is another, it depends. <laughs> um I want to say in general, I strongly recommend that you do so. Um, Most colleges, or I should say most competitive colleges, really like to see uh, a world language through um, 11th grade. And um, the more competitive the college, the more important, honestly, that's going to be. I think people don't always realize that. They think that um, high schools often kind of... um, you know, they don't require much world language. They call it an elective. But the thing to know is that competitive colleges consider world language to be one of the core subjects, along with English, ah. math, social science, um, and sciences. It's considered one of those core subjects. So, I mean, I will say most colleges, two years are going to be fine. Like, two years are going to be enough. But yeah. I would also think carefully about this. I mean, I worked with a student 
who was an A student in Spanish, and she was not the strongest student. I loved this young woman. She did exactly what she felt like doing. I was kind of impressed almost um, because she was still a good kid, but she just didn't want to work that hard in school. Um, So she wanted to drop foreign language. She wanted to drop Spanish in her senior year. It was really one of her only classes that that she was getting an A in. And I said, why do you want to drop it? And she said, well, I want to take a break. And I'm like, I don't know that you need a break. Um, Casey, like, I think you're, I think you're having a good life. So, um, and she laughed. She was a great kid. Like I said, she laughed. I said, keep taking it. This is one of your best grades. Um, And so I want to be clear. She actually got into a school that was a huge reach for her. And even though she didn't have any APs or honors, the fact, I think that she continued to take a rigorous course load in her senior year, no AP or honors, but still taking the five academic solids throughout um, I think that really made a big difference. So, yes, you can stop taking a world language for most colleges in um, after your 10th grade. But should you, the more competitive the college you want, um, the more important it is to stay in um, those world languages, even if you're not taking it at the honors or AP level. Right. Yeah. So it'll just limit your options and you might be fine with that, but... If you want unlimited options, you might want to stick with it, right? Exactly. Exactly right. All right. So let's. I'm going to ask you a question from Enrique. How much of your overall financial portfolio do colleges ask for when determining financial aid? So as I mentioned before, before the break in another question, it's really your income that drives the formula. And, and really the colleges are looking at kind of all sources of income. Uh, in terms of your assets, which again play a much more limited role in the financial aid calculations, Um, what they're asking for, most colleges require the FAFSA form. That's their financial aid application. The FAFSA form actually asks three questions about your assets. It asks for the balances of your cash checking and savings accounts. It asks for your um, the net value of your investments, and so what they're looking for there is, you know, CDs, stocks, bonds, mutual funds um, that are not in retirement accounts, as well as the value of any real estate you own outside of your primary residence. So if you own a vacation home or a rental property, they're looking at those things. And then they also ask if you own any businesses or farms. Uh, so those are those are the the parts of your financial portfolio that the most colleges are looking at. What's excluded, what they're not looking at, is is your home equity, is your retirement accounts, and is the value of any small family-owned businesses. They actually allow you to exclude those. So you're only reporting kind of large businesses that you own or businesses that you have ownership in outside of the family. Um, so, so those are what they're looking at and not looking at at schools that just require the FAFSA form, which is most schools. Um, some almost entirely private colleges ask for this extra form called the profile. Profile schools ask for more. Um, They actually, they do, so just so you're not thrown off when you see it on the profile form, they do ask about the value of your retirement accounts, but they actually, those numbers don't feed into the formula at all. So you really don't have to worry about the fact that they they ask for them. They don't really use them in 99% of the cases. Um, But they do ask about your home equity. They do count small family-owned businesses as an asset. So the profile schools ask for more information. Uh, It is a more, you know, cumbersome form to fill out. It asks 
for a lot, basically. Any kind of money you've got out there, they want to know. Um, but I would say, you know, if you're, you're considering schools that might ask for the profile and this is kind of turning you off and thinking maybe you don't want to apply to these schools, they ask a, about too much, I wouldn't let it dissuade you from applying the profile schools. Schools that use the profile, it's actually kind of a good sign that they use the profile, that is a sign that they have significant amounts of their own money to give out. And so they want to be kind of more careful about who they give it to, make sure that it's going to the people who are truly needy. If a school only asks for the FAFSA, that actually tends to be a sign that they don't have a lot of their own money to give. They're awarding mostly just government money, um, which you may or may not end up qualifying for. Um, and so it's actually kind of a good sign if a school asks for a profile, but you just have to be prepared. It's going to take longer to fill out the form. Um, they're going to ask about everything. Um, but, again, it's all in service of kind of figuring out uh, who needs the money the most. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they, they need to know, know your financial situation to, to make that determination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I've worked at exclusively profile schools, so yeah, um, yeah and we did need it. We couldn't do it without it. So exactly, <laughs> it's invasive, but you know, you're asking them for money, so you know they can ask for whatever they they need to know about the money situation. They can ask, and you just have to go along with it. Um, So I got another Mm -hmm. question for you, Sally. Um, How many APs should my student take to be competitive for college admission? Okay, so this is another question that I'm going to have to reframe. Um, it's it's kind of the wrong question. It's a really common one, but it's the wrong question because it's not about a number of APs. I get this question all the time, and I think people think that I can just say, oh, you know, 10 APs and you're set, or four APs or something like that. It's yep. not about the APs. It's about the rigor of the curriculum The colleges are not just looking at number of APs. What they're doing is they're looking at your transcript as a whole. So um, an example I would give, this is an extreme example. Don't feel like your child needs to have this. But for, um, you know, there's AP, AB calculus. There's AP, BC calculus. There's nothing beyond that. There are students who are taking in high school already um, honors, multivariable calculus, or linear algebra. Those are both courses that at, every, at any high school that offers them are going to be designated with an honors. But those are actually more rigorous, going to be considered more rigorous than an AP course, right? So colleges are going to look at kind of the rigor of your curriculum overall. Another example that I'll give you is for a lot of colleges, they'd rather see physics than AP environmental science, So, again, just it being an AP is not necessarily going to help you. Um, And then, you know, obviously grades need to be taken into account as well. Um, If you um, get a C in an AP, then you might as well have not taken it in terms of it benefiting you in the college admission process. So, I mean, what I would say is have your child take the most rigorous curriculum that they can thrive in. Right. So if they are going to take five APs, you know, an AP in each of the academic solids, which colleges do like to see, you know, AP U.S. History, AP Calculus, um, you know, AP Chemistry, you know, those, you know, AP French, et cetera, AP English. Those would all be considered really good, strong APs that the colleges would like to see. But if your child, because they've taken so many APs, they end up getting, you know, um, straight B's. 
um, not just one or two Bs, in which case it's still worth it to take that curriculum, but straight Bs or even like maybe ended up getting a couple Cs, then they've taken too many APs. Right. So, so I can't say, and, and the unfortunate news is that if you're shooting for the stars, if you're shooting for Stanford or Princeton or, you know, a, a, there sort of is no such thing as too many because there's going to be students who are taking maybe six APs in their junior year, six APs again in their senior year. It's not, it's not, it's something that you'll see, right? Um, so you really instead need to backtrack and say, what can my student actually do um, and do successfully without risking their physical and emotional health, <laughs> which I strongly maintain. <laughs> yeah, that is key, and no college is worth that. And I strongly maintain that that is true. Um, so, but you're going to have to get away from this notion of that there's some magic number of APs because there just isn't. All right, so let's go to the next finance question. Um, Nancy is wondering about need-aware admissions. Are there good schools where it's an admissions advantage to be able to afford it? Yeah, so short answer is yes. Um, Now, one thing you would need to know is what what is Nancy's definition of a good school? Um, Mm -hmm. There are some people, probably in our listener base, who think there are only eight good schools out there, only the, the Ivy League schools are all, the, all they care about. If you're looking at those schools, those schools are all um, what they call need-blind. Um, and when a school is need-blind, they guarantee you that the fact that um, you may or may not require financial aid is going to play absolutely no role in their admissions process. Um, so applying for financial aid is not going to hurt you being, you know, just filthy rich and being easily able to afford the school is not going to help you. Um, so at a need-blind school, whether or not you can afford the school it conveys no advantage or disadvantage in the admissions process. But there are plenty of schools out there that are, in fact, need-aware. Um, just from my experience, I worked at Boston University and Tufts University. Boston University happened to be need-blind. Uh, Tufts University was need-aware. Um, and I think from your experience, Sally, I think Reed is need aware. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 When I was there, it was actually need blind, um, ah, but we okay. weren't. But but we weren't able to fund everyone, and so right. then we made the decision that instead we would be need aware after I left. Yeah. Gotcha. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was actually the case at BU that was need blind. It, being need blind in and of itself, you know, it may help you in the admissions process, but. Um, folks need to understand that that doesn't mean you're you're going to actually be able to afford the school because you might not get your full need met. And so that's a whole, a whole other conversation. Um, but, yeah, so there are certainly lots of schools out there where it can be an, an advantage in the admissions process to be able to afford the school. But I will tell you that even at need-aware schools, um, finances – rarely make a difference to the decision. I think this um, you know, family's kind of concern about this, I think, is overblown. Um, from all of my experience and talking with all of our colleagues here at College Coach, many of whom have worked at Need Aware School, what I've gathered from this, you know, this unscientific sample uh, of all of our colleagues is that it, it most admissions decisions are made without regard to the family's ability to pay. It tends to be, you know, kind of only at the margins 
um, you know, when they're kind of looking for, you know, after most students have been kind of accepted or denied and they're looking to fill, you know, the last few spots in the class, that's where it can be kind of a tiebreaker. Um, you know, being able to afford the school can work in your advantage. Um, mm-hmm. So, again, it can work to your advantage in most cases. It's not making a difference. Would you say the same, Sally? I would completely agree. And uh, when a school says that they're need blind, I really, I mean, at Chicago, we didn't care if you needed full tuition, right? So if we, when we said we were need blind, we were need blind big time. You know, it yeah. was really yeah, just I not an issue. People, you know, not believing that when a school says that, that they're need blind because, you know, my neighbor's child applied and I know they didn't get in because they applied for financial aid. That's the reason. And really, it's not. Schools are not lying about that. If they say they're, they're need blind, they truly are. Yeah, yeah, they really are. And it's really, you know, if you need financial aid, you should apply for it. I just think exactly. that's kind of a basic. No college is worth going into, you know, crippling debt over. So exactly. that's the other thing to think about. All right, well, we've got... Um, I think it's unfortunately it's time to close out because there's a ton more questions that we could answer. So thank you so much, Shannon. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Okay. And thank you to Michael Sherman from Graduate to Employment for being uh, my guest today. Now I want to tell you about our show next week. Beth Heaton will be returning as our host, and she and her guests will be discussing how colleges are looking at at the old versus the new SAT, college visits, and using your tax refund to make a dent in your student loans. So be sure to join us. And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find last week's show about summer programs focused on volunteering, as well as using tax breaks to pay for college and much more. And if you like our show, be sure to rate us on iTunes. It takes only a moment of your time, and it's absolutely free. Last, don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.